Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Stuart Murdoch founded the band Bell and Sebastian. For 20-plus years, he's been writing beautiful, tuneful, specific songs about track and field stars and record executives and winsome lovers and girls who look like French New Wave stars. He loves happy pop music, I mean, to listen to, the, the Love and Spoonful, the Jackson 5. But somehow, when he sits down to write a song, it never quite comes out as happy as he thought it was going to. I, I have a friend who, who, who sometimes when I see him in the street, just comes up to me and says, you know, play your music in the sunshine. That's That should be the the, the name of your next. <laughs> and and, and all, it, all it goes, this is how it goes. Play your music in the sunshine. Everybody feels fine. That's it. That's the chorus. Your trouble is you never write any choruses. <laughs> it's Bullseye. Coming up, more with Stuart from Bell and Sebastian. He'll talk to me about meditation, about being possibly Glasgow's only baseball fan. And what it was like taking up songwriting as an adult. It seems like um, like an obvious thing, you know, for some songwriters to do. It wasn't for me. It, it took step by step. Uh, I suddenly realized I could communicate in this way. And um, in, in the quietness, I realized I had quite a lot to say that I would never have thought of saying before. But first up, David Wayne. He's an actor, a director, a writer, a comedian. He was born in Ohio. But like a moth to Lady Liberty's flame, he was drawn to the big city lights. I mean, I knew from as early as I can think that I wanted to live in New York. I knew that wherever the Muppets were and wherever Saturday Night Live was and wherever Woody Allen was is where I want to be. And finally, I'll tell you about Scarface, a gangster rapper who raps about the consequences of gangsterism. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is David Wayne. In the late 80s, he was a film student at NYU. Then with Michael Ian Black, Thomas Lennon, Michael Showalter, and a bunch of other folks, he founded The State. At first, it was a stage comedy troupe. Then, after college, it was a TV show. And it was a TV show that had a huge impact on comedy today. The group was 11 people, 11 college buddies. And they're all still working in comedy now. They did really silly, goofy stuff. I mean, one of my favorite The State sketches, and this is real, is basically just a white tablecloth restaurant and a bunch of waiters wearing white. And then they're all talking in stupid Italian accents about how the Pope is coming. And basically... (laughs) All that happens in this is people spray red sauce at each other. Like by the end of this sketch, they are literally shooting cannons of ragu onto every white cloth surface in the sketch. This is a no good. One less a white to shoot, that's a run. And the Papa will be here any minute. Just to be careful with the wine. Okay. Oh. 
When the state ended in 1995, a bunch of other TV sort of grew out of it. Viva Variety, Reno 911, Stella. Some of it involved David and some of it didn't. He ended up becoming a director as well as an actor. He directed TV shows like Party Down and Children's Hospital and movies like Wet Hot American Summer and Role Models. His latest film is called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. It tells the mostly true story of Doug Kenny, the co-founder of the National Lampoon. National Lampoon, of course, being one of the most influential comedy outlets of the 20th century. The magazine, that was its original form, included writing from legends like Michael O'Donohue and P.J. O'Rourke. On the National Lampoon Radio Hour, you'd hear performances from Chevy Chase and John Belushi, Gilda Radner, Christopher Guest. Kenny also co-wrote the movies Animal House and Caddyshack. He had a pretty rough life. At times, he'd work himself to the point of exhaustion. He dealt with drug addiction pretty much his whole life. He struggled to maintain relationships. He died at 33. A futile and stupid gesture takes an honest, sometimes touching look at Kenny's life. But since it's about the guy who founded the National Lampoon, it's also pretty irreverent and a little stupid. If you're looking for tasteless jokes and gallows humor, you won't be disappointed. The star is Will Forte. He plays Kenny in most of the movie. There are also appearances from Matt Walsh, Donald Gleason, Natasha Lyonne, and Martin Mull. Mull plays Doug Kenny, too, but he's sort of Doug Kenny now as he would be were he still alive, narrating his own life story. It's a little complicated. Anyway, let's take a listen to a little bit from the beginning of the movie. In this scene, Kenny is introducing himself to the audience. And off camera, you can hear my guest, David Wayne, the director, uh, directing him. Nobody cares about my family. Everybody has a family. Okay, I mean, there's got to be a better way to start a movie. Well, could you just introduce yourself? And my name is Doug Kenny, and you probably have never heard How of about, me. What if maybe you say something like, I'm the creative force. Creative force. No, that's comedy. that's blowing and, smoke up my own ass. I can't do that. I would say you did redefine comedy for. I redefined comedy. Okay, I started the uh, National Lampoon. I did Animal House. I did Caddyshack, and I. Well, that's that's the main stuff. What if you say I was the man who changed comedy forever, but I couldn't change myself? Really? I was the man who changed comedy forever, but I couldn't change myself. I like that. That was great. Oh, David Wayne, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Just hearing that audio clip made me smile. Well, you like the sound of your own I'm voice. I'm a big fan of me, my work, and the sound of my voice. <laughs> Those are my three favorite things. Martin Mull is certainly an entertainer who I, I'm guessing that you might be, you're a few years older than I, and I think you might have experienced the peak of Martin Mull's career and the brilliant things that he did earlier in his career. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He, he, when I was a kid, along with Bill Murray, actually, until I was a teenager, was someone where I did not understand why anyone had ever thought they were funny. Well, his dryness got me so hard. And then when I found out later that he was best friends with Steve Martin, it all kind of made sense to me. Right. Um, but he is so great. He's so funny. And so yeah. I, I'm going to give you an easy question, which is why did you want to make a movie about Doug Kenny? Well, <clears throat> I had actually not really known the Doug Kenny story until it was brought to me by Colton Abood and Peter Principato and John Stern about eight, nine years ago, um, based on the book about his life. But when I learned the story, I was like, oh, he's that guy. And he is this guy who plays this central role in 
as we said in that clip, redefining comedy at a certain moment. Um, and the things he made, particularly for me at my age, Animal House and Caddyshack, were just absolutely bedrock-defining moments for me and my sense of humor and what I, the way I looked at the world. And so to see that there's a whole story behind this and that the National Lampoon was this whole thing that gave birth to the group of people that then went on to populate SNL and, and, and then by extension everybody, the whole universe of comedy is just like, of course we want to tell this story. And it's about an interesting, fun time and place and it's a, just an interesting story about these two guys, uh, Henry and, and Doug. And I just, there was a million reasons why it was like, yeah, of course I want to make this movie. You are part of the state, this comedy group that you started with with 10 other people. Correct. Uh, when you were in college. That's right. And you were iconic voices of Generation X. Okay. <laughs> and, um, uh, and this is a movie that is about valorizing the heroes and values of the baby boom. Right. Um, and I'm not sure I'm on board with that. And I could see you in the making of the movie trying to figure out what your position on it is or trying to trying to find a way to express uh, well, a combination of admiration and distance and distance. I mean, sure. I mean, there's there's the there's the obvious issue that. The National Lampoon itself was driven by a very white male misogynist, sometimes racist uh, thrust. The The racism was, I think, usually intended in a certain ironic way, but nonetheless, you know, yeah. m much of what they put out would be considered uh, at least not PC today, if, if not just com truly not funny or offensive. That said... It still was the beginning of the thing. And I think you talk about the state, which, you know, we did that in the early mid 90s, was a direct influence from these things, from Animal House, Caddyshack and all the related SNL, SCTV, da, da, da. Um, that was what we grew up on. And it's not like the first few seasons of SNL were not they, they were the same people doing similar kind of thing. Um, and it evolves and it grows and it develops. And that's what uh, it, arguably the state was part of that. And then it moved on into other things and until today. Um, so that's what the movie's about. The movie's about chronicling where this shift began and where it started. And this particular one guy who was instrumental in starting a certain um, m more daring uh, and less uh, precious look at the generation before him. Years ago when the book that the movie uh, is based on came out, I do, did a whole episode with the author. One of the things that I felt like I took away from reading the book as somebody who is kind of two generations separated from this. You're trying to say you're story. a lot younger than me, which you are. Fair enough. We're roughly similarly good looking. Thank you. Um Unfortunately, not a comment. <laughs> um, Thank you, just the same. Uh, it, uh, the, one of the things that struck me was that w what these folks invented, and they really did invent it, was kind of a tone, a way of doing comedy that hadn't existed before. Um, how would you describe what that 
thing is that they were doing that wasn't happening five years earlier? It's a great question. Um, and I think I would have trouble verbalizing it. But I mean, the, the, there are certain, obviously, everything has its antecedents, of course. But their particular way of doing this snobs versus slobs look way of looking at all the um, structures of society and their way of also just pushing things to the point of offensiveness um, to make a point or to uh, express a point of view was new. Yeah. I mean, the brattiness is what struck me reading about it. And I don't know if brattiness is necessarily the exact word, but just one of the values, and it it varied depending on who among these people there were. I mean, one of the famous writers, Michael O'Donohue, this was like his god, right. but uh, it varied on for, for other people, was basically just scorched earth. Just F them all, right. and we just destroy everything. And it made me wonder, and a lot of great genius came out of that. Really and that was amazing very things. influential in a way to Generation X. Like, you know, I had a big bumper sticker on my wall that I worshipped that just said, who cares? You know, and it was like that, that thing, like, it all, you know. And of course, that plays out and then you grow up. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing that I wondered when I remember reading the book, and I wondered it again watching this movie, is these people are brilliant geniuses. And I mean, I've even like I worked with Ann Beats for a, uh, for a weekend once and really liked her. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was like, are these people right? Like, is that their whole thing being an maybe? I mean, <laughs> not, it's not their whole thing, but that might have been one of the driving things about them. Yeah, I think proudly so, and in a funny, clever, sometimes genius way. There's this moment in the beginning of the film where. Uh, your two protagonists are, or your 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 protagonist and his best friend are sitting in this office, having sold a magazine idea to a publisher. Yeah, and they realize they have nothing else besides having. They're just right. We've all been there a thousand times, uh, but not all of us have been there in the way that you personally right have been there, like. When I was 22 and just out of college, I was an intern at Alice FM in oh, San cool. Francisco. That's cool. <laughs> A morning show. All right. Sarah and No Name. Sure. Show. Good show. I wasn't... I didn't sell a magazine to a publisher and have to be responsible for adult right. work. Right. I was just a 21-year-old. Well, the parallels of what Henry and Doug did to what we in the state did are many. And, you know, this, Doug Kenny grew up near where I grew up in Ohio and moved to the East Coast to sort of try to mix in with the East Coast world, as I did, and then met up with these like-minded people in college and did comedy in college, as I did. And then after college, decided instead of getting a job to, like, keep the thing going, but on a national scale, as I did. And that's exactly... And we sort of sweet-talked our way at a, the right time and place in MTV and had exactly that scene in the movie where they were like, okay, you have a show now, write sketches. And we're like, okay, <laughs> let's see, uh, interior, house, uh, hmm, what's, what do we do? And then you figure it out. You mentioned that you grew up in the Midwest. Uh, Will Forte, who stars in this movie, is profoundly Midwestern. Yeah. 
Um, and Doug Kenny was Midwestern. Yeah. Why do you think that was an Why do you think that was an important part of this story? Well, Doug himself really held on to that notion that he's from Chagrin Falls, Ohio. He knew how that sounded when he said it, and he often introduced himself saying, "Doug Kenny, Chagrin Falls." Um, and I think that I could certainly relate to that. You know, I've, I you hold on to those roots that make you something specific, and that play in contrast to your, you know, um, acerbic wit or whatever, you know, and, the, the, and and he loved that contrast, and as did I. You know, he was, he was a preppy and a hippie, and he was a Midwesterner, but also an East Coaster, and he, that contrast, that insider-outsider thing, uh, I understand and, and very much was similar to that. When you were a teenager, did you think, I am going to the East Coast to be East Coasty? Yeah, basically. I mean, I knew from as early as I can think that I wanted to live in New York. I knew that wherever the Muppets were and wherever <laughs> Saturday Night Live was and wherever Woody Allen was is where I want to be. And so I just – and when I went to New York, I was just blown away by everything there and the buildings and the Empire State Building, the Automat. And I just knew – I always, always knew that I'd want to be in New York. And when I went – time to look at colleges, I didn't really consider too much anything that wasn't in New York. How did you feel about it when you got there? The same. Oh, my God. As soon as I got there, I felt for, honestly, at least the first 15 years of living in New York, I, every day I was like, I can't believe I live in the city. This is a fantasy land. It's amazing that I wake up and that I'm like in – it's like waking up in Disney World every day for me. That's how I felt like I live in Disney World. Did making this story make you think about the ways your life – could have gone in the period that was after the state and before your other successes? Because I think one of the interesting things about the history of this state was you had a very culturally significant show on MTV that was reasonably successful by MTV standards and and uh, got the opportunity to go to network television. Uh, that opportunity almost immediately disappeared and it kind of left everybody... Like, oh, wait, now all of a sudden we're all 23-year-olds or however old you were, 24-year-olds, and, and our careers are over. I think about this all the time. I mean, I always look at you know, people's careers, and I see that they, they often have a period of time where they're in the zeitgeist and relevant, and then they keep going sometimes, and it's just, they just don't seem funny anymore, especially in comedy, or they don't keep going. And, and, and yeah, I, I, I thought about that a lot then, um, and I think that's – Part of what drove me to make sure to get Wet Hot American Summer done at the time, because the state petered out around 97, and at that point, I was pretty down on my luck. Like, I didn't know what to do with my life, and I didn't know... Didn't have another job. I didn't... No one was asking me to do much, and... Uh, I mean, I think Carrie Kenny told me that she was working at The Gap. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Carrie, though, they had gone on to do Viva Variety at that time. Carrie and Mike Black and um, Tom Lennon and Ben Grant, and that was that that they had that, and we were doing our show Stella at the Fez, which was but that was two hours a week at a nightclub, and I made I profited off that maybe fifty bucks a week or something, um, so it just was not <laughs> sustainable time, um, and I was weaning away all my savings, you know that I my parents had given me money when I graduated, and I was basically spending all of it, and. Really not sure what 
what happens next or how to do it because there's no guidebook like the next thing you do after you finished your MTV series is you know so gotten an extraordinary big break has yeah. it not led to anything <laughs> <laughs> right and it happens all the time and you see it and so but I just I mean that's kind of when I started going to therapy and trying to figure it out and you know, it was actually in therapy that I was like you know I meditated on it and was like oh I I, I want to make an independent film and I'm going to just get that done no matter what like by hook or crook and that's what I did and, and so I was like, I'm going to do it right now, this summer. And then three years later, we did it. <laughs> More from David Wayne still to come. Plus, Stuart Murdoch, the man behind the legendary indie rock band, Bell and Sebastian. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on independentlens.org. Presented by ITVS. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Wayne. He co-founded the comedy troupe The State. He worked on TV shows like Stella and Party Down. He's directed movies like Wet Hot American Summer and Role Models. His latest movie is called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. It's about Doug Kenny, the founder of the National Lampoon. It's on Netflix now. I'm going to play a little bit of this sequence in the movie. It's basically... uh, uh, Doug and his partner Henry have put together this incredible team of writers who have absolutely changed the comedy zeitgeist and uh, the National Lampoon has been this incredible success. And what ends up happening is essentially Saturday Night Live hires all those people, becomes a even dramatically bigger success, certainly in terms of cultural impact. Um, and... He's just there like, oh, I right. I invented that. And so this is, uh, this is a scene where uh, Chevy Chase introduces Doug Kenny to Lorne Michaels at a Saturday Night Live after party where Doug has basically been walking around saying hi to all these people who used to be his best friends and coworkers yeah. and now are on to bigger and better things while right. he's just – Whatever. The way you describe it, it's heartbreaking, which it is. Excuse you, Lauren. It's Doug Kenny from the National Lampoon. Hi, Doug. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks. Like the show? It's uh, great stuff. Right. Well, you know, we do what we can. Um, Doug, uh, you get the kind of comedy we're doing here. Uh, you and I, you know, we share a sensibility. And the cast and writers, yeah. Spotting talent is the most important job I have. Uh, you can understand that. Yeah. I was wondering, would you be interested in joining us? <laughs> you you want me to write for you? Okay, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I'd get to be your employee. Well, that's oh, a fairly that. narrow way to put that, Doug. You think I'm flamed out. I don't know. It's not what I'm saying at all. Well, it sounds like it is. What I'm saying is I think you could make this show even better than it is. Okay, well, I don't need a handout. <laughs> that's Armin Weitzman playing Lauren Michaels. I mean, it's such a... It, it is a heartbreaking sequence in the film, especially because this is a character that, as you describe, this guy 
need took it upon himself to be number one. Right. With no other options available. Right. No secondary options available. And yeah, I find it. I hope it comes off across because my feeling is it's like I feel forlorn in that scene because yes all those people came from Lampoon, but like Lauren, the one who did it and they put it all together with a bunch of other people from other places and created this own thing that was its own thing. And then, but, um, you can see from Doug's point of view, how, how ripped apart he felt. And it's very similar to how I felt when they did Viva Variety, uh, after the state, which felt like a spinoff of the state. It was a spinoff of the state. And, uh, but I wasn't included. So I felt like they're taking the train up to stardom and I'm left behind. Um, so I, I understand that feeling. And then his feeling, Doug's, Kenny was felt, okay, so now I have to leapfrog past magazines, past TV, and make the, the greatest movie, the greatest comedy movie of all time, which he did. I think that one of the things that characterizes your work in, in you know, much of your work is deeply collaborative, but... Um, from Wet Hot American Summer to Stella to uh, the movies you've made, even the most uh, relatively mainstream movies you've made, is that you find a lot of a warm, sincere emotion in almost nonsensical silliness. I, I try for that, yeah. W- w- like in, if we contrast it with, say, Airplane. Right. You know, like Airplane is so funny. I was just watching Police Squad the best. And I was like, how is it possible that a television show could be this funny 35 years later? This is blowing my mind. But there's no feelings in those. I mean, right. th- th- only to only a kind of mockery of the idea of having feelings, basically. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're reasonably pleasant. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not mean. But it seems like you at some point m- must have made a choice that your silliness is not tearing things down and actually that almost nonsensical silliness could reflect actual emotional relationships between people. Well, I feel like one of the things that I probably more subconsciously thought when I first saw the state perform before I was in the group in 1988 was this is a brand of comedy that is including instead of saying screw you. You know, and and it was, but it was still anarchic in the right way somehow. And I cottoned to that. And I guess I've just, yes, I think I had it. I had a, and I have a, a warm romantic streak in me that just comes out. Um, but I also, you know, everything you mentioned, it, it, it comes out also because um, the people I've most closely collaborated with also bring that out in me in, in some of the movies. Ken Marino, Michael Showalter, Paul Rudd, you know, they, they also have that certain warm tone that we all feel like is part of it. And But what what I also have always tried to do, and I often thought about Caddyshack as the example throughout my whole career, is instead of just toggling between do funny stuff and then now do a serious heartwarming scene, which just is t- terrible, basically, yeah. um, try to just make the warmth come through secretly, you know, and even in They Came Together, I'm for my money, you watch that movie and it's utter silliness, nothing but jokes, but the warmth of Paul and Amy's connection is still there and I'm still rooting for them. And if they didn't end up together at the end, I would be bummed, you know. Um, So, and I feel like that little moment of warmth or the moments of warmth wherever they come mean a lot to me and make those things laugh and I'm last. And I feel like that's 
part of why, for example, Wet Hot American Summer has lasted where other movies that are just a bunch of jokes don't is because underneath everything, all the tons of jokes and undercutting in that movie is a genuine sense of nostalgia and heart and care about these people and what they're going through. And uh, the bittersweet ending of that movie means a lot to me is like a where, where it leaves you with. I was thinking about, as you were describing that, uh, the huge piles of jokes that are many of your projects. I was thinking about, you know, maybe my favorite huge pile of jokes thing is 30 Rock. Mm-hmm, sure. 30 Rock has more and better jokes than basically any television show it was ever amazing. created. Like, yeah. I'm going to say probably The Simpsons even included. I remember watching, I hung out there one day once to watch them do it, and it was amazing. Just you realize when you're there how fast they move, like the scenes go. And you could see that when they're talking anywhere close to normal conversational pace, it seems like glacially slow. And I. You know, if, if there was a if there was a reunion season of Thirty Rock on Netflix, I'd be watching it so fast, David. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I I almost got you wrong. I'm glad you corrected me. Okay, but I I feel like when I think of the relationship that I have with a similar joke pile that came along at a similar point in my life, which is what Hot American Summer. The greatest difference is that even though what Hot American Summer is even sillier than 30 Rock, I actually like, I I feel like those characters are my friends in a way that I don't feel about. And that's as somebody who, you know, I didn't grow up with the things that Wet Hot American Summer is drawing on as a reference, you know, camp movies and that kind of thing. Those were sort of received references for me. Yeah. And it seems but like so often it's the received references, like for all of us that, you know, we watch the Bugs Bunny cartoons that are making fun of things. You have no idea what they are, but they still are more affecting on people of my age than anybody else, even who did get the references. David, I've seen a lot of your work. In fact, probably close to all of it. Thank you. Can I suggest something involving silly mispronunciations of words? Oh, that's good. Yeah. All right. Or me... like substituting a, a, a slightly wrong word. For sure. the right word. Okay, I'll write that down on the list. Okay, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. I'm not, look, I'm not a filmmaker, David. Listen, I take great ideas wherever they come from. Okay. It's part of one of my talents. Thank you, David. My pleasure. David Wayne, A Futile and Stupid Gesture is on Netflix right now. Go see it. If you haven't seen the new episodes he's created for Wet Hot American Summer, they are really great. You can find them on Netflix it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my next guest is Stuart murdoch of the band bell and sebastian in the pantheon of rock band meat cutes bell and sebastian's is probably one of the weirdest Stuart, who founded the band never really had any interest in playing music. I mean, he took piano lessons, he played in recitals, but in college, when his friends were playing in bands, he was happy to watch from the crowd. Maybe DJ, sometimes. Around the beginning of the 90s, though, that changed. Murdoch started to feel exhausted and sore pretty much all of the time. He couldn't concentrate. Sleep would come, but it wouldn't help. He'd come down with chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME. Murdoch dropped out of school, 
stopped running track, stopped DJing, moved back in with his parents. And at home, he started writing songs on the piano. On the advice of his doctor, he took a class for unemployed musicians. There he met Stuart David. The music they made together eventually became Bell and Sebastian. Got married in a rush to save a kid from being deported. Now she's in love. Oh, oh, oh I was so touched. I was moved to kick the crutches from my crippled friend. Since their debut, Bell and Sebastian Records have made it on literally hundreds of top ten lists. Their second album, 1996's If You're Feeling Sinister, is routinely called one of the best albums of the 90s. These days, Murdoch still fronts the band. He's got a wife and kids. And through all that, he still deals with his chronic fatigue. In the last couple of months, the band has released a handful of EPs. They're called How to Solve Our Human Problems. The third and final EP of the trilogy is coming out next week. Let's take a listen to the first track from it. It's called Poor Boy. Murdoch, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Jesse. That's like a that's like a chic song there. Wow, that's uh, that's a compliment. Huge. I have you ever met Nile Rodgers before? I've been very yes. I I uh, a festival last year in Spain or France or somewhere like that or in, in fact Scandinavia. And uh, I watched his set and then just saw him come into the hotel afterwards and I. I said, great set, and I shook his hand. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> That's my Nile moment. Maybe like four or five years ago, he had a memoir that came out, and he came on the show. And it was just at the time I recorded the show at my house, and he just came over to my house. And he may be the most charming and magnetic human being I've ever met in my entire life. Like, he's just radiant with pleasantness, I guess, would be the word I would choose. Absolutely, one of those one of those personalities, and uh, actually, my wife, you know, she was a radio presenter for a while. Uh, sorry, we worked on radio, and and she um, interviewed, and so I uh, a few years ago, and I and I went just to just to listen to the stories. He's he's got all the great stories, doesn't he? Yeah, God, does he ever? There's a bit more dance music on your more recent records. Was that a choice that you made? <laughs> 
Do you know what? It's not so much a. I guess it is a choice. It's it's, it's maybe it's just the cells in our body. It's our bodies making that choice. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's the kind of the dads in us. You know, we're getting to that stage where we're kind of older now. We just want to dance. We don't. You know, we don't care. We don't care what we look like. We don't care what we sound like. We just we just want to before the joints go completely. Um, we just want to move a little bit. I like the idea that you've recommitted yourself to making music for uncles at weddings, <laughs> um, which is not a bad thing. You know, I go to whenever I'm at a wedding. There's always some absolutely stone-cold classic that you haven't heard for a while that the the DJ will play. So, yeah, I like wedding music. You were, uh, you were before you got ill, the sort of process that led to Bell and Sebastian, you were, like, DJing and working at a record store. And when you were doing those things, the official cool things of guys that love music and ladies that love music... Uh, you weren't thinking like, hmm, maybe I should start one of these bands. It's weird. It never, it never, never occurred to me. I never had it in me, and I was just so in love with other people's music. And I, I mean, I tell you what, my taste was always my, you know, my taste, my radar, and everything was always fully on. I, I would sit night after night, you know, because I roadied a lot as well, and 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 helped other bands out. And I would sit on the stage night after night when great bands, um, you know, came through town. Even when I'd never heard the band, I would know straight away you've got something. You, you know, you're going to make it. You're terrific. Or oh no, these are record company stooges or these, you know, somebody's throwing a lot of money at you guys and you guys are never going to make it. So I, I definitely formed my opinions at that time. When and how did you end up getting uh, or, or starting to suffer from the symptoms of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome? That was about just the end of the 80s. It was... Um, Funny the way the decade thing works. You know, I had a great eighties. That's my class. <laughs> That's my. Cla- I'll defend the eighties to anyone. You know, I, it's a classic uh, decade for me. For, uh, uh, but you know, by the end, uh, the, the last thing that happened is that Acid House uh, happened in Britain, and um, you know, so I, I I got into that, and you know, that affected my DJing and all that. And it was a great time to be a DJ, but. Just at the same time, though, my symptoms of ME started, and so I kind of burned out on a lot of things. And by the end of 1990, I really my energy had gone, and and I'd given up all. Um, you know, I was still I, I was still at college at that time, and I gave up the college, and I gave up my work, and I gave up my athletics, and you know, ended up back at my parents' house. How did the symptoms manifest themselves at first? Just a just a almost like a a car running out of gas, um, you know, or a toy running out of batteries. It was simple as that. And it might sound maybe not too insidious, but it takes a toll out of you mentally. It's a it's a weird thing to just you know, this is happening to me. My my body is is something's gone wrong and my, my body's just running down and I can't do any of the things that I used to do and I'm I can't keep up with my friends and um, you know, and the doctors can't tell me what's going on, and it it, it definitely messes with your head. I um, also have a a chronic health condition that is like poorly understood. I have very frequent 
and severe migraine headaches. And the thing that I remember when I started getting headaches as um, basically around puberty for me is that it was very lonely because it did not manifest itself outwardly um, unless I was in tears from pain. Uh, no one saw that I was in pain. And so a, a lot of people in my life either, you know, I don't want to say didn't believe me, but kind of didn't believe me. And also even those who did, it was like an impossible task to explain what it was that I was experiencing. And I wonder if you had that experience when you were kind of rolling back your life to accommodate the situation you were in, that part of the difficulty of it is that, you know, it's even a doctor doesn't really understand what it is. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about your headaches and the way that you described um, people n not understanding or it's exactly you know, that's exactly what happens with ME, with, with chronic fatigue. And why would they? It's so difficult. Um, you know, people have so much going on in their life. Why would they notice there's that going on with you? And it, it does go on. It goes on to the, the present day. I've had this thing 28, 29 years. I mean, for the first, you know, when I knew the band at first, when I started to know the band, I never told them anything because we, as, an, as a community of ME, chronic fatigue people, learned not to talk about it. Um, we just didn't have the energy to explain. <laughs> and, and what was the point anyway? Because it would take somebody with great empathy, somebody who'd been in a similar situation. I mean, I understand with your headaches, you know, to understand. And so it's, yeah, it's, uh, that's a, a whole dimension to the thing. Was part of what was difficult and scary about it that it was so difficult to put a finger on that it barely had a name and a set of symptoms in a, you know, a book of diseases and medical conditions. And like, besides that, it was sort of like, uh, will it come? Will it go? Is it, you know? I'm, I, I'm, I mean, I'm almost like afraid to report, but to, to this day, that's, I, I do live in fear and I, I fight that fear every day. Because it's, it, you know, it comes in the morning, it comes during practice. I could be at practice and I'll be in pain all day. And the psychological, you know, you're just bruised by the end of the day and maybe you're in tears because you don't want to give up your job. Um, but at the same time, it's so unpleasant to be suffering um, sort of through the day. And of course, there doesn't seem to be any parameters with these things. You are a voice crying in your own uh, wilderness. Um, there's no particular, you can't go to an emergency pill to get you through something. Um, so, you know, anything that you can use, you know, Buddhism, Christianity, I'll, I'll, I'll take them all. <laughs> More bullseye after a quick break. Still to come. You want to talk baseball? You're going to want to head to Glasgow and talk to indie rock celebrity Stuart Murdoch. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Starbucks. 
For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Stuart Murdoch of the band Bell and Sebastian. Their latest release is a series of EPs called How to Solve Our Human Problems. My father, when I was a kid, worked in the independent living movement with disabled people. And his best friend was paralyzed by polio below the neck. So he he could move one finger and below the neck and had to use a breathing machine all the time and had a big motorized wheelchair. And his his name was Ed Roberts. And one of the things that Ed used to talk about was, you know, you have this disability, right? You are living with this disability that is makes your life very different from the people around you. But in a lot of ways, it can be, you know, it can be a power or make you develop a power in a way. And it seems to me like if you had not had this health condition, all of these amazing things that happened in your life might never have taken place. That The fact that you spent years in your early 20s suffering from this condition, living at home, in a way seems like it was the thing that slowed down your life to the point where you focused on this one thing that you might never otherwise have spent years focusing on, and it, and it might have been the thing that, that led to you becoming a songwriter. Yes, uh, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you. It was the, it was the moment that turned uh, my life upside down uh, in 1990. And um, and so much happened. It was it was year zero. Everything, my old personality and the, the practical life that I had before was left behind, and it was a blank slate. And I actually I spent uh, quite a lot of time in hospital around that time. I was so debilitated, and when I started to pick up, because it you know it did me some good being in the hospital, and finally when I made it out, I made it back to my parents' house. I knew that I wasn't going to get any worse. I knew that this was the start of looking ahead and that I was mentally positive, uh, even though I had lost, you know, 50 or 60% of my energy at that point. But um, strange things happened. And that was, you know, in that quietness back in my folks' house, I, I, you know, I started to go to the piano and I started to invent tunes and I also realized that that I could speak a narrative and that I could turn my thoughts into words and that I could quite easily turn them into tunes. So it was it 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 seems like um like an obvious thing, you know, for some songwriters to do. It wasn't for me. It it took step by step. Uh, I suddenly realized I could communicate in this way. And um in in the quietness I realized I had quite a lot to say that I would never have thought of saying before. Your new record is uh, an EP, one of three that you've put out recently. 
you also put out EPs in the mid-1990s. And I want to play a song called Dog on Wheels from 1995. Confounded by you, and still a boy, I am indebted to you. Every song I ever wrote was written for you, written for you. Now I'm feeling flat, you seem a mile away. I'm so tired that down on the pavement I'm lay. Till the blossom of the tree comes falling on me, falling on me. You know, your music is usually described as um, indie pop, uh, which I think is a word for things that are song-driven and melodic but aren't folk music and aren't uh, super hard rocking. I-, I know that you loved, like, and love, like, just straight up, bubblegum pop music from the 60s, the Archies or whatever. And I wonder if you ever aspired to be a hit songwriter. <laughs> that's a good question. I think in a different time, in a different place, but that's that's the case for so many, so many people that, you know, they're wishing they were in, in another time. Uh, it's it's fantastic to, to think about, you know, what happened in the, the 60s and then but also, the, you know, the 80s was so a great time for pop, especially in Britain. And, yeah, we, we, we sort of play this game in the group that we we kind of wish somebody would commission us to write pop music for somebody else. And, and, and we actually go out and we try to write songs for other people, we for interesting singers. And But um, I guess, you know, there's so many musicians and bands and people around these days, it's, it's a hard gig to get. i mean if you think of a great single pop song like i mean the one that comes to my mind is i want you back right but we could talk about a a chic song right we could talk about uh freak out or as or as it was originally titled off yeah (laughs) um those songs are songs that have a very particular emotional idea like off and the lyrics are mostly expressing that one idea. There's not a usually a ton of specificity in them. They're not often character-driven. I mean, there are certainly specific smash hit great pop songs, but mostly it's like, you know, You Send Me is just Sam Cooke saying You Send Me over and over. <laughs> that's that's a, one of my favorites. It's a beautiful song. Oh, my God, is it ever? I mean, it's one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And uh, your songs are all about detail. Like, detail is in every single one of them. And I, I wonder if you ever thought, like, you know what? We're going to write 12 songs, and they're gonna- one's going to be called Dance, Dance, Dance. <laughs> one's going to be called The Power of Love. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think at one time in Britain, there was, there was three songs called The Power of Love all in the charts at the, the same time. <laughs> There was the Huey Lewis, there was Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and, and then Jennifer Rush, you know? Um, you know, so so you could be, yeah, you could be right. We, we, um, I, I have a friend who, who, who 
sometimes when I see him in the street, he just comes up to me and says, you know, play your music in the sunshine. That's that should be the the, the name of your next. <laughs> and, and and all it all it goes. This is how it goes. Play your music in the sunshine. Everybody feels fine. That's it. That's the chorus. Your trouble is you never write any choruses. <laughs> I, I want to play another Bell and Sebastian song. This is from uh, the 2003 album, Dear Catastrophe Waitress. It's called Piazza, New York Catcher. Um, but, but before we actually hit play on the song, it does seem to be tangentially about a Hall of Fame baseball catcher, Mike Piazza, formerly of the New York Mets. How did you come to write a song <laughs> where that was a reference point? Do you know, I think tangential is the word and, and it's just one of these it's just one of these nice situations where you've got you've got a bundle of experiences backed up in your the back of your brain somewhere and they all tumble out at once and and there's there's different strands and there was there was the relationship with, with Marissa who was then who was to become my wife and there was our peripatetic existence, the way that we met in in you know, in European or American cities. There was also our, our kind of bonding over baseball in the New York Mets, and um, so the, these strands all tied together and and just hit the page. Let's take a listen. And out with me, my private, and we'll sail around the world. I will be off Adam, and you, my wayward girl. Many nights of talking in no towns can you take? Many nights of limping round on pagan holidays. So are you a Mets fan? Yeah, I, I I do I do like the Mets ever since um, my friend Nate first took me to a game at Shea back in the late nineties or early two thousands. Yeah, I feel like had I not grown up with baseball, I can hardly imagine the amount of work it would take to follow baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird sport and very boring. Like, I love baseball. But anytime anyone is criticizing baseball, they're like, it's boring. It's weird. What are they doing? Like, why does the one guy have to hit the ball? All that stuff. Like, why are there long breaks? I, I am just like, yes, you are correct on all fronts. And <laughs> basketball is definitely more fun. Football is amazing and so complicated and uh, takes so much brains. Soccer is so universal, and you could all you need is a, a ball and uh, a ball and some garbage cans. Uh, and yes, all of those are true. I have no idea why I like baseball so much. So the idea of picking up baseball as a non-American is just baffling to me. Well, we have we have this game cricket, which is it's 
it's possibly even less understandable. <laughs> That's true, uh, because you know, I understand baseball, and I have tried to understand cricket. And my friend Andy Zaltzman is like the world's foremost cricket comedian. <laughs> and like, I have no idea. I laughed. I, there's a, you know that movie, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, the, way, the Wes Anderson one, the cartoon, the animation? Yeah, it's a great one. Um, the, he has a, he, so he kind of made up this game called Whack Bat, I think it's called. And I think he's riffing on his experience of trying to understand what cricket is because it's a very, you know, it's, a, it's based in Britain, the whole, the whole film, the whole Fantastic Mr. Fox. And um, so it's funny the way that he sort of sends that up. But um, you know, but uh, you know, baseball I guess started with the English game of rounders, and then when you guys took it on, uh, you made up your own rules and you refined it and made it a faster game. I think there is also another essential appeal of baseball that I've heard from folks who are casual, very casual baseball fans. Folks will go to a ball game, uh, but don't necessarily follow a team or whatever, and that is. It is kind of nice to sit there and if you drink beer, have a beer and a hot dog and it's kind of pretty and it doesn't ask that much of you. I think that's exactly it. I, no matter which American city we're in, I just it's one of these things that I do. You know, I like to walk across American cities. I like to run across them when I, well, when I used to have energy. You know, I like to go to church in American cities. I like to meditate in American cities and I like to watch baseball. And to me, they, they all, all these things that I've described, they have an essence of of the meditative about them. They also is an opportunity to see uh, America just relaxing, just, you know, rather than being a tourist, you actually belong in a game and you, be, you know, whereas you belong in church as well. How big of a part of your life is meditation? Um, well, it's become a thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like, I was just talking to my wife on the, the phone before and, and I, we were just remarking that when trouble happens or when a problem happens in your life, you know, maybe a bigger thing, then quite often there's a, there's a counterpoint to it if you just go looking for it, um, you know, which is sweet. And, and then the overall effect is that you, through the whole process, you sometimes come out being a better person and with a little bit more wisdom. And I think the counterpoint to me, having the kind of relapse in a difficult time the last three or four years was stumbling back into the kind of the meditation center and, and sitting through so many sort of Buddhist classes. Um, so that's, it's definitely become a, a thing and it's seeped into the music too. How's it seeped into the music? Well, you, even the, the fact that we've called the series of records How to Solve Our Human Problems, that's one of the books that we study. That's one of the books that we read from uh, in the particular uh, centre that I go to. I, they're always reading from that book. And I, at just one point I realised, well, that's what we have to call the the record. I'm going to pinch that title. And, and I asked I asked the, the, the writer of the book, Geshe Kelsang, if, if that would be okay. And, and he thought it was a good thing. Stuart Murdoch, thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you, Jesse. It was great to talk to you. Let's listen to one last song from Bell and Sebastian's uh, new EPs that have come out over the last year. This is from part two. It's called I'll Be Your Pilot. I got your dreams completely I've got them locked away 
Stuart Murdoch. Their newest record, How to Solve Our Human Problems, Part 3, is out now. Buy it, stream it. I guess ask your smart speaker to play it. I think that would probably work. Whatever you do to listen to music these days. Bell and Sebastian, How to Solve Our Human Problems. Getting near to the end of this week's Bullseye, but first, how about a hot culture tip from me? It's a segment we call The Outshot. So I was watching a YouTube video the other day, and Scarface, the rapper from Houston, was laughing. And it kind of blew my mind. And it's looking like you haters and you fakers is imitating us. <laughs> Shade it up. Braid it up. Why did it blow my mind? Because Scarface never sounds happy on his records. He pretty much always sounds like he's about to cry. Now as I open up my story with the blaze of your blood, so you can picture thoughts slowly upon phrases I run, and I can walk through the days that are done. I often wish that I could save everyone, but I'm a dreamer. Have you ever seen a hooker who was strong in the game? Overlooking his tomorrows, and it finally came. Look back on childhood for a reason I'm still feeling the pain. Turning circles in my ninth grade, dealing cocaine. Too many houses in my local life, survived the strain. And a man without a focus like to drive me insane. Stuck inside a ghetto fantasy, hoping it changed. But when I focus on reality, we broken and changed. Had a dream. When Faye started recording at the end of the 80s, Houston did not even have a dot on the rap map. As far as the hip-hop industry was concerned, Scarface might as well have been repping I don't know, Juno, Alaska. I shot my gun in the air as I left the place. You left me wild, but I don't care. Just call me Scarface. In 1991, his group, the Ghetto Boys, put out their first hit record. That's how Houston made its name. On the big single, Mind Playing Tricks on Me, Scarface grabs control of the room from the moment his microphone turns on. For folks outside of Houston, folks who'd never heard a Southern voice on a rap record, it was terrifying. How deep into death, fear, loneliness, and paranoia could a hip-hop song go? I sit alone in my four-cornered room staring at candles. Who got me? Real radio do? Oh, all right. Let's this Headline, I can't sleep. I toss and turn. Candlesticks in the dark. Visions of bodies being burned. Four walls closing in, getting bigger. I'm paranoid sleeping with my finger on the trigger. My mother's always stressing I ain't living right. But I ain't going out without a fight. See, every time my eyes close, I start sweating. And blood starts coming out my nose. It's somebody watching the act. But I don't know who it is, so I'm watching my back. I can see them when I'm deep in the covers. When I awake, I hear a car burning rubber. He owns a black hat like I own. A black suit and a cane like my own. Some might say, take a chill beat. But I can't, G, because there's somebody trying to kill me. I'm popping in the clip. Scarface was and is a gangster rapper. His lyrics are about the kind of G-codes and violent fantasies that turned rap intense and thrilling and sometimes scary in the early 90s. 
But unlike his West Coast contemporaries, who were happy to be having a barbecue, and unlike his East Coast peers, who were running grim stick-ups in project hallways, Face was and is obsessed with the, the consequences of gangsterism. What comes after you've done wrong? Pressing down on Scarface's best records is the oppressive weight of fear, sadness, and death. You can hear it in his lyrics, but even more in his voice. It croaks and cracks under the strain of his feeling. Imagine life at its full peak. Then imagine lying day in the arms of your enemy. Imagine peace on this earth when there's no grief. Imagine grief on this earth when there's no peace. Everybody's got a different way of ending it. And when your number comes for souls, then they send it in. Now your time has arrived for your final test. I see the fear in your eyes and in your final breath. How much longer will it be till it's all done? Total darkness at ease, be it all one. I watch him die and when he dies, let us celebrate. You took his life, but your memory can never change. You'll be headed to another place. And the life you used to live will reflect in your mother's face. I still gotta wonder why. I never seen a man cry until I seen a man die. In the late 90s, Face pushed his way from cult hero to rap icon. He started Def Jam South. He signed Ludacris. He put out a star-packed record on Def Jam called The Fix. And on the biggest single from that album, he rides a Donny Hathaway piano loop into a reverie about the old neighborhood. He was only 32 years old, but he was already an elder statesman. Every day has been the same old thing on my block. You either working or you're slanging on my block. You had to hustle, because that's how we was raised on my block. And you stayed on your hop until you made you a knot on my block. To hang out was the thing back then. And even when you left out, you came back in to my block from Holloway. Belford the Scott, re-rolled the flocks. We know the spots. So. He was more often personal by the late 90s and early 2000s. The despair that had once been abstract was now crushingly concrete. Into the studio, do this with Jiggy. I got a phone call from one of my Jiggy. Said my homeboy, Reek, he just lost one of his kids. And when I heard that, I just broke into tears. And seeing it secondhand, you don't really know how this is. But when it hits that close to home, you feel the pain at the crib. So I called mine and sat my wife the bad news. Now we're both depressed, counting our blessings because Brad's too... There's always been plenty of nihilism and rage in gangster rap. I'd be inclined to say it belongs there. It's a power thing. I like to feel powerful, too. But few rappers have connected so deeply as Scarface with the aftermath of trauma. There are so few emotionally honest stories in rap about the day after, the years after, about the moment you face your maker. Scarface was wise at 19. He's wiser still today almost 30 years later. Listen to Scarface as he croaks a message to you. Gangsters don't live that long. Don't soul on the cut make our ends meet. Oh, broken ain't the option penitentiary. Or the grave is the only way we fall back. Do our time, ATW, then crawl back. To them streets where we come from, taught life. Look alive, yo, you better walk right. Real with it, quick trigger finger gun play. I only know how to deal with these bling in one way. And someday I swear to God I'ma change that. 
but I can't cause some evil demons came back. And when I'm high, y'all, I can't explain what it feels like wishing I could die just in the pain. Man, I've been a loyal dude and you can trust that. But loyalty versus greed equals felt that. I need to talk, but it ain't no one to listen. Lost the side of mental exorcism. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where the weather is a balmy 80 degrees here in early February. Not sure really what to make of that. It makes it very difficult to get dressed in the morning. Looking for your lightest flannels. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Welcome, Shana. This is her first time sitting on an tracking. She's right there. Hi, Shana. Welcome. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by The Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. Their label, The Go Team, are on U.S. tour right now, and you should totally go see them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, while you're out there cruising the information superhighway, which is what I like to call it, make a pit stop on the Bullseye Facebook page and click that like button. We'll share interviews with you, tip you off to guests, and, of course, post gifts of Chris Elliott as Marlon Brando doing the banana dance. It's about 50% banana dance content. I guess that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.